Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. He is the most Shakespearean creature since Shakespeare. If Shakespeare could sing with myriad lips, Browning could stammer through a thousand mouths. Hello, and welcome to TLS Voices, brought to you by the Times Literary Supplement. I'm Sam Graydon, and those were the words of Oscar Wilde on the subject of this week's episode, the poet Robert Browning. Browning was born in 1812, the son of a clerk in the Bank of England. He was taught at home, and from a young age was interested in poetry. He had written his first volume of verse by the age of 12. He refused to train for a profession, and by 18 had decided that he would become a poet. A year later, he published his first work, although fame did not follow until some 37 years later, with the publication of his 21,000-line-long poem, The Ring and the Book, 1868-69. to in which nine dramatic monologues from different speakers tell of a murder trial in Rome. For the next 20 years he continued to write, being regarded with increasing respect, so much so that in 1881 the Browning Society was formed. He died in Venice in 1889, and a year later was venerated by Wilde. Wilde is, of course, not entirely without criticism. Throughout his long career, Browning was often accused of lacking poeticism and having instead an abundance of impenetrability. In 1869, for example, Alfred Austin, who later went on to become the Poet Laureate, described his poetry as the very incarnation of discordant obscurity. And almost a hundred years later, in 1966, Anthony Burgess wrote that We all want to like Browning, but we find it very hard. But as Wilde himself repeats after each of his criticisms, nevertheless, he is great. In this year of Shakespeare, it seems that it is now impossible for any writer to be said to have had such an impact on literature as he did. But it is fitting to look at one who can at least claim to be his second. The question, then, is why is Browning great? Many would argue that his poetic legacy is his dramatisation and invigoration of character in poetry. That is not to say he was the first to conceive of dramatic poetry, or dramatic monologues, which exist as far back as Beowulf in the English tradition and as far back as the Iliad and Odyssey in the classical. Nor is it to say 
that his dramatic lyrics were an entirely original form. Examples by Wordsworth, Arthur Hugh Clough and Tennyson were all published before Browning became well-known. Yet, if we compare the beginning of Tennyson's Ulysses with that of Browning's Soliloquy of the Spanish Cloister, we may see the difference of Browning's dramatic lyrics. It little profits that an idle king, by this still hearth, among these barren crags, matched with an aged wife, I meet and dole unequal laws unto a savage race, that hoard and sleep and feed, and know not me. I cannot rest from travel. I will drink life to the lees. All times I have enjoyed greatly, have suffered greatly, both with those that loved me and alone, on shore, and when through scudding drifts the raining Hyades vexed the dim sea. I am become a name. Whereas Browning's poem begins, Grr, there go, my heart's abhorrence. What your damned flowerpots do? If hate killed men, brother Lawrence, God's blood would not mine kill you. What, your myrtle bush wants trimming? Oh, that rose has prior claims, needs its leaden vase filled brimming. Hell dry you up with its flames. At the meal we sit together, salve tibi. I must hear wise talk of the kind of weather, sort of season, time of year. Not a plentinous cork crop, scarcely dare we hope oak gores, I doubt. What's the Latin name for parsley? What's the Greek name for swine snout? Tennyson's verse is masterful, but never before Browning would you have grrr in a poem. And the nearest analogy is perhaps Arthur Hugh Clough using the word rubbishy in Amour de Voyage in 1849. And it is not just grrr. Browning's verse is littered with exclamation marks, dashes, ellipses, false starts and repetitions. The garrulous and gregarious Fra Lippo Lippi, the Renaissance painter and monk, who Brown apostrophizes, for example, fumbles amicably through his lines. Who am I? Why, one, sir, who is lodging with a friend three streets off. He's a certain, how do you call, master, um, uh, Cosimo of the Medici, in that house that caps the corner. Boh, you were best. How far this way of writing can be said to be a true representation of life is a matter of debate, of course. For people do not really say boh or zooks, even if they are a 15th century monk. But with this dedicated imitation of colloquial speech, not only does Browning inject vivacity into his characters, but, more importantly, he makes us think that everything that is uttered in the poem is dramatised, coming from somewhere, not to be taken merely on the authority of the poetic voice, that the voice itself is to be judged. And here is the precursor to T.S. Eliot's The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock, Philip Larkin's Livings, Ted Hughes's Woodwell, and so on. G.K. Chesterton said of The Ring in the Book that it was the great epic of the age because it was the expression of the belief, it might almost be said, of the discovery that no man ever lived upon this earth without possessing a point of view. In his introduction to the letters of Percy Bysshe Shelley, Browning defined two types of poet, the subjective and the objective. The subjective poet does not paint pictures and hang them on walls, but rather carries them on the retina of his own eyes. 
he leaves the noisy, manifold experience of man to listen to the beatings of his individual heart. The objective poet appeals to the arrogant human mind and deals with the doings of men. Their poetry is substantive, projective from themselves and distinct. Shelley is, according to Browning, the paragon of subjectivity, and Shakespeare the archetypal objective. This description as aptly serves Browning as it does Shakespeare, as both succeed in capturing different points of view, a phrase that was originally Browning's, in a way seemingly detached from their creator. Browning's proliferation of distinctive and vivid voices, his creation of personae, was taken up by the modernists. Indeed, Ezra Pound's first attempts at what would become the cantos, his three cantos of 1917, were addressed to Bob Browning. T.S. Eliot noted the influence of Browning in Pound's personae poems, and in 1957 would call him Browning's greatest disciple. Pound, likewise, in his review of Prufrock in Poetry, put Eliot's dramatic monologues in the tradition of Browning's collection Men and Women, which he labelled the most interesting poems in Victorian English. Or, if that statement is too absolute, let me contend that the form of these poems is the most vital form of that period of English. And so, here is an extract of Bishop Blaugram's Apology, followed by a toccata of Gallopies, both from men and women. Bishop Blaugram's Apology No more wine? Then we'll push back the chairs and talk. A final glass for me, though. Cool, if faith. We ought to have our abbey back, you see. It's different, preaching in basilicas and doing duty in some masterpiece like this of old brother Pugin's, bless his heart. I doubt if they're half-baked, those chalk rosettes, ciphers and stucco twiddlings everywhere. It's just like breathing in a lime kiln, eh? These hot, long ceremonies of our church cost us little. Oh, they pay the price. You take me. Amply pay it. Now, we'll talk. So, you despise me, Mr Gibbardis. No depreciation. Nay, I beg you, sir. Besides, tis our engagement. Don't you know? I promised. If you watch a dinner out, we'd see truth dawn together. Truth that peeps over the glass's edge when dinner's done and body gets its sop and holds its nose and leaves soul free a little. Now's the time. Tis break of day. You do despise me, then. And if I say, despise me, never fear. I know you do not in a certain sense. Not in my armchair, for example. Here. I well imagine you respect my place. Status, entourage, worldly circumstance. Quite to its value. Very much indeed. Are you up to the protesting eyes of you in pride at being seated here for once? You'll turn it to such capital account when somebody, through years and years to come, hints of the bishop, names me. That's enough. Blaugram? I knew him. Into it, you slide. Dined with him once. A Corpus Christi day. All alone. We too. He's a clever man. And after dinner? Why? The wine, you know. Oh, there, there was wine. And good. What with the wine? Faith, we began upon all sorts of talk. He's no bad fellow, Blaugram. He had seen something of mine he relished, some review. He's quite above their humbug in his heart. Half said as much, indeed. The thing's his trade. I warrant, Blaugram's sceptical at times. How otherwise? I liked him, I confess. Che-che, my dear sir, as we say in Rome. 
Don't you protest now. It's fair give and take. You have had your turn and spoken your home truths. The hand's mine now, and here you follow suit. A Takata of Gallopies O oh, Gallopy, Baldassara, this is very sad to find. I can hardly misconceive you. It would prove me deaf and blind, but although I take your meaning, tis with such a heavy mind. Here you come with your old music, and here's all the good it brings. What, they lived once thus at Venice, where the merchants were the kings, where St. Mark's is, where the doges used to wed the sea with rings? Aye, because the sea's the street there, and tis arched by what you call uh, Shylock's Bridge, with houses on it, where they kept the carnival. I was never out of England. It's as if I saw it all. Did young people take their pleasure when the sea was warm in May? Balls and masks, begun at midnight, burning ever to midday, when they made up fresh adventures for the morrow, do you say? Was a lady such a lady, cheeks so round and lips so red, on her neck the small face buoyant, like a bellflower on its bed, over the breast superb abundance, where a man make base his head? Well, and it was graceful of them. They'd break talk off and afford, she to bite her mask's black velvet, he to finger on his sword, while you sat and played to carters, stately at the clavichord. What, those lesser thirds so plaintive, six diminished, sigh on sigh, told them something? Those suspensions, those solutions? Must we die? Those commiserating sevenths? Life might last, we can but try. Were you happy? Yes. And are you still as happy? Yes, and you? Then more kisses. Did I stop them? when a million seemed so few? Hark the dominance persistence till it must be answered to. So, an octave struck the answer. Oh, they praised you, I dare say. Brave gallopy, that was music. Good alike at grave and gay. I can always leave off talking when I hear a master play. Then they left you for their pleasure. Till, in due time, one by one, some with lives that came to nothing, some with deeds as well undone. Death stepped tactily and took them where they would never see the sun. But when I sit down to reason, think to take my stand nor swerve, while I triumph over a secret wrung from nature's close reserve, in you come with your cold music till I creep through every nerve. Yes, you, like a ghostly cricket, creaking where a house was burned. Dust and ashes, dead and done with, Venice spent what Venice earned. The soul, doubtless, is immortal, where a soul can be discerned. Yours, for instance. You know physics, something of geology, mathematics are your pastime. Souls shall rise in their degree. Butterflies may dread extinction. You'll not die. It cannot be. As for Venice and her people, merely born to bloom and drop, here on earth they bore their fruitage, mirth and folly were their crop. What of soul was left, I wonder, when the kissing had to stop? Dust and ashes. So you creak it.
and I want the heart to scold. Dear dead women, with such hair, too. What's become of all the gold used to hang and brush their bosoms? I feel chilly and grown old. This week's TLS features Clive James on a new history of virility, Emily Wilson on the origins of Latin literature, James Hall on Botticelli, Caroline Larrington on the strangely modern folklore phenomenon that is the Green Man, and much more. To find out about the TLS and to read a free selection of pieces from this week's issue, go to our website, the-tls.co.uk. You can read the TLS in full every week in print or via our app, which is available on iTunes and in the Amazon App Store. The TLS. Life in every word. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.